welcome to EBS at Union Now. Our guest this week is Rashad Robinson. He is the president of an organization called Color of Change. Their stated mission involves strengthening political and cultural power for black communities in America and making political and corporate leaders more responsive to the concerns of black people. In 2015, Fast Company named Color of Change the sixth most innovative company in the world. Robinson was even selected as one of the Route 100, a list of emerging and influential African Americans under 45. Be sure to check out our Facebook page, content being updated daily. Good afternoon. I'm Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. I thank all of you for joining us in the first of our Facebook Live Just Vote conversations. I am most honored to welcome today Mr. Rashad Robinson, the president of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization committed to creating a more human and less hostile world for Black people in America. Under his leadership, Color of Change has led successful campaigns for pursuing criminal justice, economic justice, reforms and media, policing, and the list can go on and on and on. Today, we are here to talk about democracy and the vote a campaign Color of Change is now involved in. So first, let me thank you, Rashad, for joining me today in this very important conversation and taking time out of your work to be here with us. Well, this is the work, first of all, but it's also just a pleasure uh, to be with you um, and to be with the community. Uh, so thanks for having me. Well, let's jump right in because there's so much to talk about as we turn toward this fall election in the times in which we find ourselves in the midst of two pandemics, uh, if you will, a health pandemic and the pandemic that is white racism and white supremacy. And so that brings me first to this matter of voter suppression. As many have suggested, this election is perhaps one of the most significant, to be sure, in our lifetime, if not in the history of our nation. It reflects in many ways to me a turning point as this country decides what direction it wants to go as a democracy and if it really ever is going to become a democracy where there's freedom and justice for all. I'm reminded in this election of the 1876 election that put an end to the period of reconstruction when black people were enjoying some measure of political power uh, as a result of the 15th amendment, giving them the right to vote. So in many respects, Rashad, I see that we are at another reconstruction like crossroads. And so in fact, we have seen a resurgence of post reconstruction like voter suppression policies since the 1965 VRA, Voter Rights Amendment, has been all but gutted. So let's begin here. How did we get here as a Black community? Given our history and the long struggle to vote, 
how did we take our eye off the prize and our foot off the pedal to perhaps not seeing this coming or at least preventing this from happening? You know, I think it's a couple of things. I think a lot of the sort of work around voting rights after 1965 became defense. It became about defending the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was the best compromise they could achieve at that time. It wasn't perfect, but it was a huge piece and a critical piece of um, of policy, of written rule change. I've been reflecting about this a lot um, as we have been remembering uh, John Lewis um, and all of the work that he did to secure so many sort of important pieces of written rule change. But the opponents uh, who know that um, uh, that they can't win if we vote um, have um, really spent a lot of time, not just in the public policy space of trying to chip away at um, our right to vote, our ability to express our will for a better future. They've also done it in the culture space. And they've created a cultural narrative about race and racism to even for years, even saying something was racist, that you were racist for saying that, creating a whole set of ideas around uh, being post-racial. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is actually why it's incredibly important that in everything we do, we can't mistake presence for power, yes. visibility and awareness, retweet, shout out from the stage, representation alone is not the ability to change the rules. But when we hold up sort of representation, folks can sort of take the bait from us and they can say, well, you've got people in these positions. What do you need laws to protect uh, your ability to um, engage in voting? And so in so many ways, when you are about defending something you want instead of advancing towards the next thing and that um, can be seen not just in voting rights, but in healthcare and so many other areas where we've had victories only to watch our opponents chip away at them. Part of this is having to recognize that we have to continue to build power. This is not a hearts and mind change. This is about what does it mean to translate presence and visibility into power. And it's the ability to change the rules. But just as much as we are working to build power, there are those who want to stand in the way of our freedom and liberation, who are working to build power as well. And so just like they know that uh, they can't win if we, if, they, if we vote, we need to recognize that we can't win if we don't vote. And that has to be sort of a, a call, a, a organizing principle, a clarion kind of call to arms in terms of how we show up every single day. Um, with voting being a key piece of anything we do to win the type of justice our people deserve. So well said, <laughs> and so much to, to, to get out there. And, and I like this notion that, first of all, we can't simply defend what we have. We have to continue to be proactive and continue to chart the course toward freedom and toward justice, which is not simply a uh, of the ch uh, charting a course of defense, but also creating and, and new laws, new policies, and new ways of gaining power and engaging. So at the same time, and you're right, the moment 
in fact, that the Voting Rights Amendment was passed in 1965, though the opposition to it remained engaged. And they remained, they weren't simply fighting against that, they were creating new laws in yep. order to suppress the vote that they were afraid of. And so we see that we have sort of new versions, if you will, of poll taxes, right? Uh, yep. so we have voter ID laws, which we know, in fact, uh, unduly impact people of color because they have also been designed to make sure that the IDs that are required are IDs that people of color typically don't have, in which, of course, the 1965 VRA would have protected against in some sense. So I want to ask you this, what now in terms of voter suppression on this level, we'll get to voter turnout in a moment, what should we most be watching for? And what can we do now to try to protect the vote? Yeah, I mean, there's gonna be work in the courts. There's gonna be a lot of efforts that we're gonna be engaging to do the rapid response, to call things out. Um, we're also gonna be dealing with uh, uh, all the ways in which voter suppression um, and voter suppression tactics have changed, right? So yep. we'll be dealing with an unprecedented amount of misinformation and disinformation. And what's different about those two things? So misinformation is what we've been dealing with for years, right? It's the don't show up to the polls if you owe child support or if you owe back taxes. We see that every election cycle and that misinformation is patently untrue and it's designed to um, you know, keep people away from the polls, to sow doubt in people's minds about whether or not to show up and what there might, and that there might be consequences for their actions, right? That in many ways can be exactly connected to putting police in front of polling places. Back, um, back in 2016, we had to fight as polling places were moved from sort of town halls and small cities to the police stations um, and had to fight against those. All of those are sort of tactics at decreasing sort of the um, interest and passion around showing up to the polls. Um, and then there's the disinformation and disinformation is different in that what we are gonna be seeing this election cycle is a whole range of tactics that sort of sold doubt in people's sort of uh, ideas about whether or not their vote counts. Um, and that's going to require um, us at the grassroots level to be armed with the right information and to leverage the sort of trusted relationships we've built over years. The thing about disinformation is, is that there are sometimes pieces of it that have truth. And so you just can't say it's untrue, right? If someone says, um, the best thing you can do is stay home this election cycle because both parties have treated you like you don't matter. Now, I would look crazy going to Black folks and say, you know, both parties have never treated you like you don't matter because there are examples of both parties treating um, people like they don't matter. And so we actually have to help people recognize that the sort of people behind asking you to stay home don't want you to win either. And so part of this is how do we connect folks with the sort of trusted messengers that are not just swooping in on election day asking people to vote, but are going to be there 365 days a year to channel voting into the type of change that makes people's lives better. Because our job here is not to give politicians jobs. 
<laughs> but to make people's lives and our communities better and work better. And so there's going to be misinformation and disinformation. There's going to be all sorts of things. I mean, if you, in 2018, watch what happened in Georgia, right? That's the playbook. And that playbook will um, have performance performance enhancing drugs sort of um, connected to it. It will have a justice department and, and bar um, and others who um, are gonna be there to protect it and allow that to flourish. And that means that all of us um, have to recognize that the reason why they're doing this, the reason why anyone would do this is not because our vote doesn't matter. It's exactly. because our vote is very, very powerful. Yeah, and again, so well said, because people are paying attention to the vote, trying to suppress the vote of black people in the black community and others of color, because it does matter, <laughs> because it will make a difference. Yeah. And so, which means in this instance, the work that you are doing at Color of Change in terms of being an online platform and engaging uh, in particular social media is very important work in terms of trying to get out the vote and a certain segment of that vote. You are so right when you talk about disinformation in this regard. And here's what we know about uh, the impact of voter suppression and uh, the voter turnout. We saw a 7% decline in black voter turnout between 2007, 2008 and 2016, the, the election that put in the MAGA vision that we are now all dealing with, right? We saw a 7% decline in black voter turnout, a greater decline than in any other uh, racial ethnic group. And we also saw a decline in the black millennial uh, demographic in their turnout. The only demographic in terms of millennials in which there was a decline. So how do we, so we now have new voters in what is it, Generation Z, right? But we also see in social media, in Generation Z and in young millennials, the disinformation that you were talking about that has a measure of truth, right? You know, when is our vote? Does it really count? But you're seeing people say, well, the vote doesn't count. Why are we voting? We don't have any real choice at the, at the polls. You know, we don't want to, we don't like uh, either uh, any of the candidates. How do we change the narrative and get that vote out and help the young millennials and Generation Z to understand the legacy uh, and the importance of voting and especially in this, I just want to call it in this sort of post-reconstruction, uh, yeah. uh, 21st century post-reconstruction election. So that's such a great question. And I imagine there's like a wide range of people watching us right now. And we're on Facebook, so we actually might be trending a little older um, here. And so I, I want to talk to the folks who have young people in their lives, um, because you are can be a force multiplier at talking to people in a way that I think will help bring them in. And so what I want to say to you all is that we can't fight misinformation or disinformation with more misinformation mm -hmm. and disinformation. I think we have to be honest with people with acknowledging that the vote is one piece of the puzzle. I don't think that we can talk to Gen Z 
and millennials about all the people that died and fought for our right to vote as a pathway for people to vote because it just is not sort of a, um, a thing that's motivating. And I would dare say that if uh, folks should kind of chart back to their early 20s and wonder if people who were a couple of generations older telling them that someone died and fought for them, if that was the sort of motivating factor, if they were on the offense about something. Now there's gonna be there's gonna be young people who are compelled by that, but they're already compelled. And so the folks who are not compelled, I think we actually have to tell a realistic and honest story about where voting sits. I've sat in the room in a lot of focus groups. And what I know is this, is that people had a black president and they saw the sort of ways in which all the change did not happen. They saw the barriers that stood in the way of that progress. So we can't just tell people a story of representation, but we can tell people a story about what does it mean to build power to disrupt the systems that stand in our way? What does it mean that we have to fix and fight oppressed systems at the same time as voting inside of it so we can get enough foothold so that we can do the next thing? What my, what my, ask is, and what my hope is, is that we actually treat Gen Z as the sort of brilliant folks who are designing the 21st century uh, technology, um, creating the sort of um, engagement and media campaigns um, that are creating the culture that is shaping our society and our economy in so many ways, and that we're honest with people about both the importance of voting, but where voting fits and how it fits. And I think that we can't either infantilize people or talk down to people, but welcome people into that fight. You know, I saw people, sort of young people, you know, really compelled by a different candidate during the primaries. Um, and they were compelled by a different candidate in the primaries because that candidate was talking directly about systems that had failed, not telling a story that if we just get inside the systems that we can somehow fix it. I'm, a, I'm just like just out of that millennial. And so I grew up, Brian, you can see the, the Johnson publication <laughs> pictures behind me. That's Diane Carroll getting ready for the Emmys and that's Miles. And, and, um, and I've got like a lot of prints from Johnson publication because I grew up with Jet Magazine once a week, right. exactly. Ebony and Essence. And I grew up with this theory that black faces in high places and you, and you work to achieve and you get inside the system and you win inside the system. And here is the truth is that we have to break many of these systems because they were never designed for us to win. And that is a story that does include voting, but it doesn't include voting as the sort of panacea towards our liberation, towards our freedom, towards more justice, that we will still have problems if there's a new occupant in the White House and we will still have to build power to change the rules because having a black president doesn't mean we're post-racial any more than having a lot of black celebrities who America loves and celebrates means that America loves black people as much as America loves black culture because America can love, celebrate, monetize black culture and hate black people at the same time. And this is why the framework of not mistaking presence for power is so important because power is the ability to change the rules. And in order to change the rules, we have to have the levers of power. We have to be able to have people we can hold accountable. In essence, 
we have to put people in office that are nervous about disappointing us. And when we put them in office, we have to know that they are going to disappoint us. And we have to focus on doing the work to hold them accountable, creating the rewards and creating the consequences. And that, I think, is how we have to talk to people about what does it mean. But I do think we open ourselves up to the information and disinformation when we tell people a story of a politician getting elected by the majority of Americans that's going to come in and sweep in and change all of these ills that have been in place for hundreds of years. That is trying to to sell a bridge that is not for sale. We need to help and invite people in traveling over the bridge with us together. Well said. <laughs> Again, that's right. And the vote, while it's important, it is not the yes, answer yes. to all of the complex problems that we face that have created this situation in which we are in of racial inequity, uh, et cetera. So let me say this before I shift a little bit to talk about the church's role in this. Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you this before I create this. We're talking all the time and I just asked you, you know, what do we say to Gen Z and young millennials about trying to get them engaged in the vote? And so we're, we're concerned about them and their engagement in, 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 in uh, the democratic process. But they're, they're asking us a different question, right? And that is, what do we say? And you've touched on this about holding these politicians accountable. Yes. So what do we say? What is the message that we have to give to the politicians of color? Uh, to, to the black representatives and politicians that we have put uh, into places of power. Just as you know, the same question could go to black influencers, black celebrities, black athletes. What, what is our message to them? Because we have to take a certain amount of responsibility for the fact that we do have a certain demographic that is saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. Our vote doesn't matter. Even when we put people in office that look like us, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. So what's our message to those people, to the candidates now that we are hoping that people will support? Yeah, people sometimes tell me like, don't hate the player, hate the game. And I don't, <laughs> yep. and I don't hate either, right? I don't hate anything. But, 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 what I, but what I do know is that I have to hold the player and the game accountable. I have to hold the player and work to change the game. And that, and both of those things have to operate sort of at the same time. You know, I think about voting as like an exercise analogy, right? It's like the stretching of exercise, right? Stretching alone probably won't help you reach all of your sort of goals. Um, uh, but if you don't stretch, just like if you don't vote, you're gonna hurt later. And so, you know, part of this is right that we vote because we can put new people in office and color of change has been part of that effort where we have shown up to district attorney's offices and they were not nervous about disappointing us. And so we've had to build the power and the energy, not just to show up to their doors with petitions, but kick their doors in and force them to have to listen or put someone there that could. And that means that we have to be part of something. You have to engage and be part of infrastructure that can do that. that that doesn't live on Twitter. That lives as part of activism and engagement. Twitter can be connected, but Twitter is a tool 
Twitter is not a strategy. And so all of that, I think, is really sort of important in terms of how we think, right, about how, how do we um, make good on people's participation? How do we make sure people can feel powerful inside of their activism? Because simply asking people to vote for the lesser of two evils every election cycle um, is not sort of a long-term strategy to making people feel powerful, but also creating false equivalencies about candidates, creating yeah. false equivalencies about voting or not voting is also not being honest with people either and not. And so we need to be able to have a complex analysis about a complex problem. And we need to invite people into that complexity and trust them to sort of travel down that road with us because society and this country is complex. And the fact of the matter is, is the other thing that I think is really important is I think sometimes we talk about voting and particularly when we talk about black folks, we can sometimes talk about voting and I hear people say like the young black activists, just vote. And sometimes we will say about voting in ways where it's almost like we're talking to black people like we're remedial. Yep. <laughs> black people are the protagonists in the American story of voting. And when I mean protagonists, I mean the hero. No group of people have fought harder, stood in longer lines, have had to overcome more. When you write a story of a hero and you start off that they have a struggle and then they've come through something like the Bible has many of these stories of someone that has faced the struggle and then come over and over. Black people in this democracy have made it to the point where people around the world chant our chants, use our songs, and read about our frameworks to fight for our own liberation. And so to the extent that that was never simply about voting, voting was a piece of that puzzle and something that we had to secure in order to be able to secure the next set of things down the road. But all of this is about how do we uh, build power. And so I do think that as part of this work, we need to consistently wrestle with this. And I think as part of this effort around voting is that we need to inject more joy. Yeah. <laughs> right. A lot of our voting, a lot of our work can be focused on pain, can be focused on struggle. But Black joy is not the absence of pain, but the presence of aspiration. Not just what we are fighting against, but what we are fighting for. And right, Black people um, have been at the heart of creating some of the most joyful and creative spaces, especially during this pandemic. If you go on IG Live and social media and some of the places that are getting people through have been at the heart of essential workers and helping people through um, so many various crises in this country. And so I, I think it's also important that we as we talk about voting, as we talk about this election where uh, black people can be blamed when Democrats lose, black people can be blamed um, for all sorts of things in election cycles, that we sort of lean into this idea of black brilliance, black creativity, black ingenuity, because it is much easier to ask people and demand people and invite people into work to participate when you are not starting at a deficit around sort of their worth, their value and their contributions, but we are starting from a place of really recognizing that it's their contributions and their input that has been the game changer um, when we have won um, on the things that matter the most. Yeah. 
the black imagination, right? The black moral imagination and imagination for a justice, for freedom, for a democracy yeah. that perhaps others could not even dream of. When you had the black enslaved fighting for a democracy that, that others could barely even envision. And that brings in black joy, I know. Singing about, singing about freedom songs when you did not know what freedom looked like. Freedom was. Yes. Fighting for freedom, as I always say, with people fighting for freedom who were born into slavery, died in slavery, never envisioned that they never dreamt that they would be free, yeah. yet fought for freedom and fought for the vision that was articulated for this democracy that never has yet to become real, yet continuing to envision its possibility, right? That comes from an oppressed people, that comes from a people who have not known justice, mm -hmm. but but have a vision. And a lot of that comes from out of the black church space, right? Mm -hmm. And from the black faith community, which historically has been the center of sort of the black struggle, even as it's been the center of black joy. And that struggle has always brought a certain kind of joy. What, what do you see as the role of the black church and faith community today? It is in so many respects been, it's appreciated but maligned. It's been said that it doesn't have as significant a role to play any longer, and particularly in a generation of younger black activists. Uh, what's, and we're coming upon our time, so I'll go this, what's, what do you see the role playing? What has been even your biggest disappointment in terms of the black faith community? Yeah, I mean, when I, 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 you know, I think I'm gonna start positive, and then I'll end positive. Um, <laughs> um, you know, where our people are gathered, there is opportunity for progress. In the, mm -hmm. and church and church communities have been um, a space that have held community, have held space, have held um, a vision. Uh, for how people could work together and live together and build together, a place of um, of comfort during the sort of deepest and darkest times in a place where a celebration um, could be through our own eyes. And I think all of that, I think is um, incredibly important, incredibly important to what does it mean um, to make our, our fight for justice, not simply about voting or elections, uh, but about something that has a much longer arc and an arc that is really focused on, um, you know, how do we create a more human and less hostile world. You know, i very clear that um, black joy is not the absence of pain. And so there's a lot of pain that comes from the black church. There's a lot of ways in which um, coming together and these spaces have not been open, have not been um, inclusive, have not uh, been nurturing, um, have, um, acts of people to perform and to participate and to show up, 
but only as a piece of themselves or um, at the expense of their full self. And we have to be clear about that and acknowledge that because that is how we actually don't replicate those sort of mistakes of the past, but it's also how we, um, as we are fighting oppression on the outside, don't uh, create models of oppression on the inside. And all of that has to be incredibly important because we're not just trying to change the written rules of policy, but we need to change those unwritten rules of culture because unwritten rules of culture in so many ways get to determine how much of the written rules of policy we actually get to experience and how much we get to enjoy. And the final thing I'll just say, um, as I think about um, sort of uh, the church um, and church communities, um, I think that, you know, in so many ways, as I see uh, the emergence of um, uh, the ongoing sort of uh, the both the emergence and the continuation and the history of mm -hmm. the sort of radical theology that um, is unafraid uh, to talk about justice, is unafraid to challenge unjust systems, that is unafraid to talk about corporate power, that's unafraid, that is not simply looking for charitable solutions, but is looking for structural change. Um, I, every day, work, wake up to make justice real. That is the work we do at Color of Change. And I know all around this country, there are um, church communities, there are communities of faith that um, are working to make justice real. And in order to see justice inside of systems that are designed and operating um, in ways that are oppressive and are ways that are painful, you've got to have faith. You've got to believe that there is something better on the other side of all of this and that the fight um, in this lifetime and the fight that we pass the baton to actually matters. And in so many ways, it's why Color of Change, we um, invite um, in faith communities. It's why we partner around the country with faith communities. It's why people come in and work with our Voting While Black program and other programs to engage in voting because we recognize where we are gathered, uh, there will be joy, um, there will be hope, and there will be tons and tons of possibilities. My goodness, thank you for that. Thank you for this time. Color of Change has its work cut out for it mm -hmm. between now and November 3rd and beyond on this road to justice, working to make justice real. What would you like to leave us with? Yeah, the final thing I'll just leave it leave us with is like I used to go in the voting booth with my grandfather, um, Charlie Trent, Eastern Long Island, Riverhead, um, Friendship Baptist Church. He would mm -hmm. find out who to vote for at church, and he would like sometimes take me into the voting booth with him. He'd put me on his shoulders. And uh, my mom would sometimes be there and um, asked me to read the names. It was a very Polish community. And, um, and um, that community, so the names weren't always phonetic. Like they didn't always, they didn't always sound exactly um, the way that I, I was learning how to read at the time. And um, he would correct me sometimes. And I always thought it was great. It was that lever machine back in the day. And I didn't find out till after my grandfather died that he actually couldn't read or write. 
Hmm. At the time in the polls be with us, that was like, you know, us, us engaging. It was such a, um, as I look back on it, I don't think of it at the time because it was just me doing what I was told and like yeah. enjoying it and being, you know, around grandpa. But I say all that to say that our fights are cultural. Our fights are political. It wasn't illegal for him to get an education, but it's a sharecropper in Virginia and then going on the great migration to um, Eastern Long Island from the farm fields to the farm fields. No one valued education. There wasn't infrastructure for him to have an education in his labor and the history of black servitude, that all of that was more important. I say all of that is that in this era, we hear a lot about things like relational organizing. We hear a lot about, so what does it mean for communities to be connected first and issues second? But when I hear words about relational organizing, I think about what we have always done, how we've always been in community. So I think the one thing that I wanna leave people with is beyond the sort of like, uh, fancy articles that will be written about voter turnout beyond the sort of like um, new strategies that will be deployed beyond even the technology that we'll all have to use in an era where we can't knock on doors the same way. We know what to do. We know how to be in community. We know how to help one and be together, whether we're that like five-year-old, six-year-old kid on his grandpa's shoulders or whether we are working hand in hand with the folks in our communities that need a little help in the midst of a pandemic to be able to cast that ballot. We've got to be our brothers and sisters keepers in powerful ways, but we know how to do that. And don't let anyone tell us that we don't. And so my biggest urge and my biggest hope is that we get to work. Get to work. That's the message, get to work. Color of change is at work. And if you don't know what to do, I invite all of those who are listening to go to Color of Change, uh, their uh, webpage, and there's plenty of ways to get engaged and plenty of campaigns to be involved in so that indeed we are able to create a world that where people are treated as human and a world that is not hostile, especially toward people of color. Thank you, Rashad Robinson. Thank you for your work and the witness of Color of Change. Thank you.